welcome to another edition of Practitioner Radio, Pink Elephant's podcast for the IT management community. Elephants podcast for the ITSM community, episode 19. No, 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 19. An old 80s reference there to that song. Uh, Chris Dancy here with Troy Dumoulin. Troy, how are you? Hey, Chris, I'm doing well. How are you doing today? Doing well. Happy holidays to you. Well, it's almost there. One more week and we're down for vacation. Well, I know. And, and, and there'll be no practitioner. Well, there's always, even in Candy Kiss Gingerbread Dreams, there's, there's practitioner radio. <laughs> practitioner radio at the North Pole. Yes, I'm sure Santa listens. So uh, still, uh, I get a lot of feedback from uh, the Quality Systems uh, podcast 18. Thank you again for taking time to do that. Did you share with me some information about the strategic role of uh, IT uh, and, and uh, as an operating model? And I've got a blog we're going to talk about, and you've also sent me an article about the CEO kind of being the captain of this this ship when it comes to suppliers and services. Can we, as, as kind of a year-ender here, can, can we kind of bring all this home and wrap it up? Absolutely. So, you know, the key message of both the article and the uh, the blog article that I sent is that um, we're really having to rediscover the supply chain of uh, IT value generation. And it actually fits well from our last conversation on theory of constraints, which actually, you know, started in life as kind of this manufacturing quality improvement model, mm-hmm. because that's what we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about a, a macro value process where we get demand in the front end because you know what we do in IT should be the cause of something we're being asked to do. And then we've got to take a demand, a requirements list, blueprint that out in design, build it, test it, and then run it. So we have this, this factory concept of demand supply. And getting an IT operating model together is in essence mapping out that end-to-end value flow. And uh, that's the key concept of this operating model. It's a kind of a this picture at a 10,000-foot level of what are all the macro capabilities it requires to take business demand and translate into something valuable they actually want to consume on the other end. So normally when we talk about uh, pictures and, and, and information graphics in, in IT, they're never very... Uh, they're never very pretty. I usually think of Visio diagrams and the marketing department sometimes will do these fun infographics with stats and stuff. This IT operating model is an end-to-end a snapshot. Have you actually seen one of these things? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's something that we're doing with a couple of our customers right now. Mm-hmm. And um, when we talk about enterprise operating models, we can also think about, uh, there's a book from MIT Sloan, we'll put a note in the show notes about this, called Enterprise Architecture. Yep, I think we were, we might have talked about that one, because I know I'd, it's in one of the show notes, we talked about another MIT Sloan book you mentioned. It's the same one, so Enterprise Architecture, a strategy, and it's really saying, you know, to manage this IT business that we're in, within the business, we should know what are all the moving parts and how they connect, mm-hmm. right? You know, we talked about localized improvements versus systemic improvements last time. Yeah. Right. So you can make a lot of great improvements on specific areas, but still not impact or affect the value flow across those areas. For example, we have one customer we're working with right now 
uh, and they were struggling. Literally, it took them six months to introduce a new technology artifact to their environment and to have it in production. Uh, it was largely outsourced, but to multiple providers. And each of these providers were heavily involved, very busy. No one's saying they're not busy, but they all had different priorities, right? They weren't aligned in their priorities. So we didn't have good flow through the whole system. In fact, in this organization, even the challenge of not having good flow required them to have an expedite group that basically took anything that really needed done fast and kind of bypassed everything on a, on a dedicated line. So wait a minute, they had, a, they had like a super fast group? So when things had to like not go through normal processes? Exactly, because it was so rough. Uh, that wow. was exactly what they had to do. And that's actually classic manufacturing problem. So you got this, this supply chain creating widgets or whatever, uh-huh. um, and you get a fast order in. And it says, this one must go out tomorrow. Well, then an expediter picks that up and moves it ahead in the queue, right? right. So that it's worked on in front of everything else. Uh, and that gets done because that's what the expediter is you know, trying for. And that is pushed out the door. But what happens to the rest of the queue? while things keep jumping the queue in this model. Yeah, so in, in that picture you just drew for me, I, 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 you know, two things come up. I obviously theory of constraints because now we, we could have created a new bottleneck by doing that or, or just the, the fact that we allow that to happen is maybe a bottleneck. It bogged the whole system down because we keep, and that for some organizations is the way they operate normally. I mean, everything is expedited. Right. There is no normal system. Yeah, the normal system is the abnormal system. Exactly right. So th- that that is a mind bender in itself. And then the other thing is, you know, from everything, uh, nineteen episodes, which would be what eight, eight, nine, nine hours of education here at Practitioner Radio, because uh, it is the fastest thirty minutes in in ITSM audio. You know, th- the idea of moving something around in the process. So it reminds me of something I saw you tweet, and that was something about agility and velocity, but I don't remember how you tweeted it. <laughs> yeah, agility is not necessarily the same thing as velocity. Okay, now what does that mean? <laughs> okay, so agility is I jump fast and drop my current priority to do something else so I can be really agile. Tell me what to do, and I'll do it. I'll do it now. And velocity, the definition of velocity, is speed with direction. So you can have very agile groups all working 120% utilization, but on their own priorities, all going different directions. And uh, you can have an agile organization, but you're not producing anything very quick because each group is separate and moving differently. <laughs> You've got the fastest moving non-producing team ever. Absolutely. Because let's face it, we're all busy, but just not busy productively in the same direction. Yeah, I was just at a conference where a CEO, uh, his name was Brian Lilly from a company called Equinox. And he said, you know, all the time, I, everyone, all my direct reports tell me they're busy. But I always say, I don't care that you're busy. What are you getting done? Exactly. And uh, it kind of goes into this whole culture conversation, which, you know, you and I have successfully avoided <laughs> in some in some major way, shape, or form. Yeah, we're going to do that one soon. We have to. Oh, yeah. That's that's that, that, that's it. Well, I think with the Mayan calendar, we'll keep that in 2012. The demand management uh, versus supply management. And let's kind of get back to this 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 picture. Okay. I, I like it because, you know, I'll put a... I'll put a uh, a link in the show notes. We've got a, a photograph here. And if you're listening, I encourage you to kind of pause where you're listening and and, gra- and grab and grab this this diagram. But you've kind of got the demand coming in, like you said, the supply going out. And you you've got this you know very you know detailed analysis. Um, and then we've got this concept of you know things jumping in, in front of everything. Start to break down for me how I would even begin to understand this photograph and, and, and I guess the importance of it. So let's put it this way first. First of all, we already are in the business of demand and supply and we get it done somehow 
maybe not in the best productive way. And maybe we don't even call it demand and supply. No, we just do the business of IT, right? right. We get it done. Just get her done. Get um, her done. Get her done. Get her done. So it's not like we don't do this already, but the challenge is what we've lost is the kind of the input and output from each major life cycle. So we have to have a good front door. We talked about that in demand management and with the 2011E uh, evolution of ITIL, we now have the BRM role, front-ending portfolio, and you know that's taking in strategic demand. Uh, we have the catalog and the service desk. I call those the three doors of demand coming in, requiring something of us. So that means we are we are designing and improving in our services relative to business requirements. And this is the, the difference between the lean concept of pull versus push, right? Push is, I'm going to create something for you, business, just because I had a good idea and I think you need it. <laughs> pull pull is, uh, oh, that's what you want me to do. So, okay, that's what I'll focus on. And those are my priorities. Uh, there's a... Paul Wilkinson has his ABC cards, and there's an excellent card in the deck where it shows business strategy and IT strategy, and they're two circles that don't meet. They just keep turning beside each other. Yeah. <laughs> That's because you know we don't have demand linked in from the business. That's why. Right? So you got this whole front-end door, but then you have the whole design, uh, engineering, development, architecture space where I take those and build service and systemic blueprints that basically meet the requirements that have been captured in design. Okay, excuse me, in demand. And then that blueprint is what I use as the transition criteria for production assurance. So I know testing and validation must prove not just the technical side of this equation, but it actually meets the initial demand. And then I move things into production only after I've met that set of criteria. And now I run it according to the design specifications, which have been, of course, initially initially initiated by demand. I had this value flow, right, through the whole life cycle. And everyone's doing something in that area today in IT because that's the business we're in. But unless we have our inputs and outputs from those major life cycle phases figured out, Mm -hmm. I don't know which or what I need for the next stage and what are the requirements and what should I expect from each stage moving through it. Yeah, because I would think it would be hard to even wrap my head around continual service improvement unless I have this map, because you have no idea what you're improving or who's doing what. Exactly. Yeah, and, and the other thing is, you know, when we talk about demand and supply, I really like this idea because on the demand side, you list our customers, so managing our client relationships. And on the supply side, you talk about managing our services and our users. And I think it's one of the first, you know, graphics I've seen that really used them both in, in the same picture and, and showed how they meet in the middle. And this is the the whole purpose we exist, right? To be able, be able to enable business process through giving something to the business user, business line customer, uh, that automates their business outcomes. You know, why do we do all this? Why spend the time and, and figuring this out? It's like the picture on the back of a puzzle box, mm. okay? Mm. In a typical IT organization of any size and complexity, there's a lot of moving parts. Would you agree? Yeah. Right. So how do I put this puzzle together without that picture or understand how things interconnect or, uh, you know, how all this blue sky gets put together unless I have this reference model? Well, I think in most businesses, they just do it by gut. It's it's a gut feeling that this is how it all fits together. It is a gut feeling. That's how it's done. So it's like getting a puzzle and, and on the back it says, trust your gut. Or just think about how efficient it would be to put together a thousand-piece puzzle without the picture. You can get it done eventually. Yeah. 
But how long is it going to take? You, yeah, you, you and a bunch of other people would have to be arguing over your gut feeling. No, that looks like a tree. No, that looks like the bush. It would be a lot harder. And that's what we do. We spend lots of time in these meetings arguing about the input's output yeah. from the one piece to the other. Interesting. Right? Yeah. This reference model, it gives me, first of all, the overall big picture of the demand supply flow. But then it allows me to use that reference model as an assessment tool against my capabilities areas and saying, okay, where do I need to pick up my socks and improve? And what improvement would make the most impact on the whole system value flow? As a theory of constraints concept. So, so uh, a value, a uh, quality system brought in to the conversation there. Help me, uh, ITIL 101 here. Um, what, what book talks about IT operating models, or, or do any of them? <laughs> Actually, I would, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, it would have to be the strategy book if, it there, if it's there at all. It'd be in the strategy book, but I can't, I can't verify that right now. Yeah, this should just be page one of each book. So the, the life cycle itself is kind of a high-level flow. You know, yeah. strategy, design, transition, operation, CSI. Yep. But it doesn't go in deep enough. And the operating model for an IT organization is larger than IT service management, right? Amen. So some of the capability areas are service management, absolutely. So we're talking change management, IT service continuity, finance, all of those things. But we're also talking architecture, project management, information security management, you know, those are other parts of the operating model. And what I find interesting about this operating model concept and, and, and this idea of actually having it mapped out is unlike what I thought when we initially started talking about this, this isn't a, a, a something that just moves one direction. This, this operating model is, is, a, is a model that goes in all directions and looks at all the intersections. You really can't say it, there's any one flow to it. I mean, I'm looking at one section of it where I'm going back from you know incident escalation, which go, comes out from managing customer services, but I could jump over to major change requests that comes in from design and sourcing and out to major service components. I mean, this is really absolutely brilliant when looking at how all the pieces fit together and not doing something simple like an incident becomes a problem, a problem becomes a change. This really is an IT operating model. It's a reference model at the operational level, right, yeah. from demand and supply. Now, what's on the article is only level one of what an operating model would be. Oh, don't do that to people, Troy. Well, it's true because those okay. are the macro boxes you're seeing on the article. Right. You'd actually go down another level to say, okay, within each of these macro boxes, I have another series of capabilities that I'm, you know, looking at. And then with each of those capabilities, I would have, you know, things like what is the goal and the critical success factor and what are the activities of this task. So an operating model has at least a couple of levels before you get to some usefulness. But in the end, it's a reference model for managing delivery of value. The article that I sent you, you know, the, the CIO as the manager of the supply chain. And that's what this is, this supply chain demand supply. The CIO is the manager of the supply chain, which we know well, a consistent theme for 2011 was mixed supplier model. Yeah. So as he's the manager of this supply chain. So once you've got the supply chain mapped out in this operating model view, I can then strategically decide how I'll source various aspects of it. Mm. Right. I might give this major capability area to a third party. I might uh, give this part of my service model to a cloud provider. But literally, I now have this reference model, which I can use to plug in multiple supplier capabilities. But without it, again, it's, it's difficult to understand how that supplier would plug into my value system and what they're expected to receive and what they're expected to give out the other side, right? So this is a reference model that allows me to manage complexity. Wow. 
so the article talked about the CIO, you know, the future, and we're hearing a lot lately about, you know, what does he do? What does he look like? You know, how do we get the message to CIOs, this, this concept of IT operating models, and where should they even start when realizing, hey, I don't have this, I kind of need to? Yeah, there are reference materials about operating models you can kind of look into as far as, you know, the Google aspect, but the, the best thing to do is sit down and start mapping out your current organizational flow. And uh, that's a service we've been helping some of our customers you know, start with. But the other side, I'd like to go back to a comment that you mentioned about, you know, how do I, how do I start with understanding how to integrate suppliers? Right. And where do they fit? I want to talk about an enter- what we're observing as kind of an organizational evolution. Yeah. So we've been on this technology consolidation kick for a long time. Mm-hmm. We have done the data center consolidation. We've done the desktop consolidation. We've done the common application consolidation. We now move to virtualization. Now we're exploring private cloud, maybe public cloud. So this technical consolidation. A lot of it's not been driven by strategy. Initially, it's been driven sometimes <laughs> by just cost cutting, right? I have to give back that proverbial 10 to 15% cost reduction every year. So, so... That's, I hate I hate when I interrupt you when you're on a roll, but I got to ask. So I agree with you. This has not been by strategy, all these changes you just mentioned. Are we proverbial living in some type of IT technical ecosystem that we're just not aware that organically these things are happening? Or is it literally just, you know, we're doing these things out of sheer necessity or gut feeling? Maybe a bit of all of the above. Both. Right? Okay, okay, okay. Because we, yeah. there is a focus on and pressure for reducing cost. Yep. And there's also an interest in evolution of technology and adopting new technologies. That's just part of our DNA. All right, so we've got the DNA concept of we want something new and we want to evolve this. But we've got the reality, the, 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 the right brain or, or saying, hey, that we've got to cut cost. But what starts as a cost action can eventually evolve into strategy when they start th- seeing, well, wait a minute, maybe we'll come up with a standard platform now, and the private cloud concept helps you to get there because you're standardizing on technology just to be able to do that. So a cost action, although two seconds ago it felt reactionary, could end up being a strategy action. Exactly. Gotcha. And how this goes into the people side and back to the operating model, tying that in, is initially you, you start with the technology, but then you start looking at the human capital because that's where a lot of your costs are. Right. Right. The, 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 basically the resources, the salaries. So you start seeing duplication based on task specialization, and you see examples of project management groups in every function. So we bring up we bring a little quality systems into the the equation now. Yeah, we're thinking about plan, do, check, act, and say, right, well, you right. know what? Maybe we should have one project management office versus each group having their own. Right. It's going to be more efficient and less costly. Right. And then maybe we'll develop specialty knowledge within a centralized group that can work with each functional area. But instead of having five project groups, we have one. We have an ITSM service management office that basically supports enterprise processes across the value chain. Right. right. We have a single architecture group. We have a single information security group. And so these groups begin to evolve at an enterprise level that are being pulled out of the functional areas they've been duplicated in because of the way we've 
silo based our organizational structure. It kind of makes me wonder, you know, with this IT operating model, I, while you're talking, all of a sudden I'm simultaneously imagining a CPU and how the evolution of the CPU has happened by moving things to higher level caches and, and making them more efficient. You know, what came first, uh, the IT operating model or or or, or engineers driving some of these higher-level thought processes when it comes to what you're talking about. Well, to even get more efficiencies, you have to look at doing things smarter. Right. And that's what you're referring to. Okay. So it was only when we were forced to do things smarter that we, we said, we, this status quo doesn't work, and to go to the next level for scalability, we need standard technology platforms, we need standard processes, we need standard enterprise groups as, as opposed to having multiple groups doing the same thing. Right. So this efficiency push starts maybe... Not so much from a strategy perspective, but eventually gets you there. Yeah. So follow me through this conversation now where I've got all these groups spinning out, right, of the functional areas and creating these little enterprise functions, the PMO, the ITSM service office, et cetera. But now they're all kind of floating and where do they point? Where do they report up to? (laughs) Well, they initially report into, you know, some senior management team leads or VPs and then maybe the CIO but then what's happening is they're all beginning to be coalesced now under a third new tower, a service delivery tower, for lack of a better words, which holds all of the enterprise functions like architecture, HR, finance, supplier management, service management, project management, you know, those things. And that means leaving the arc, the application group and the infrastructure as the second and third major silos. But here's the, here's the thing. When I've got all these groups now being more efficient for the enterprise good, I can now plug them into an operating model because I have a consistent platform now for certain capabilities. But I can also source the infrastructure and application areas the way I'd like to because now I have created, in essence, a governance structure that allows me to create and manage a mixed supplier model. Until then, I didn't have the wherewithal or even the skill sets to basically manage this enterprise strategy. Yeah, with all these high-level components and, and, and systems, as we start to to make them more and more efficient, you know, you're, you're, I think maybe it's just because the end of the year. I keep thinking about the Matrix because if you go back to that movie, you know, the Oracle was a high-level system who was there to keep certain things in place. Uh, even Agent Smith was a high-level system to keep rogue programs in check. They were controls. That's right. They were con- they were controls within the system. That's right. Maybe the Matrix was all about IT operating models. <laughs> well, the, the <laughs> Matrix, in essence, was a frame of reference, right? And the controls made sure things happened the way they should. And, and would the architect be Troy? <laughs> well, no, the architect would be the CIO. He, okay. It's okay. right. And he is the chief architect of his organizational value system. Be, or, or, or should or be. Should be. Or should be. That's should his be. role. And when he or she is the chief architect of his organization's IT value system, he then plans carefully who and what supplier and what partners plug into that value system. But I cannot do that until I've mapped the value system out and I understand it from its various components and how they interrelate. Because localized improvements do not necessarily give me systemic end-to-end value or improvement in throughput and speed and velocity. Yeah, and then that can, again, that starts to touch on that culture issue because localized improvements, while, you know, relevant and important, touch on, you know, are we really looking at holistically the bigger picture? By making a localized improvement, you know, am I doing it for my team or for 
the IT operating model as a whole. And, you know, chicken egg, here we go again. Um, well, actually, let's build on that a little bit here. Yeah. So let's say every year I have to make my, my business plans, right? I, we've just gone through that here at Pink Elephant. We're doing our business planning. Now, we could do our business planning by department in each and with each isolation, each department doing that in isolation. But then if we don't roll that up to some kind of enterprise plan, right, who squeaks the loudest here? Who, who argues for the, you know, the loudest for the point of view of the squeaky wheel? They end up winning the, the lion's share of the investment capital. That's not in the best interest of the enterprise. So without the overall picture, you know, each group basically is vying for the resources, each with their own priorities. So could you say that it's human nature to to be to, to, to work the squeaky wheel model and not the the kind of bigger picture? We had a, a conversation about tribal cultures and national cultures. Yes, we did. And yeah, and I'm and I'm trying to be very careful with this question, as you can tell, can't you? Yeah. <laughs> I, I can. And <laughs> let's put it this way. and I don't want to step on any politically incorrect statements yeah. either, but there's there's a concept of tribal and or uh, silo priorities. Yep. Over the good of the nation or enterprise. Mm. And in some cultures, we live in an enterprise culture where the good of the enterprise overrides the good of the silo. But in many early evolution cultures where there's not this operating model tying everything together in one yep. family value system, yep. 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 every silo, in a sense, is its own tribe, and then tribal and or silo-based priorities take precedence and priority over the good of the nation slash enterprise. And in some respects, those tribal or silo decisions actually, like we did earlier with the cost-cutting leading to uh, actually strategic planning, maybe that silo mentality in some organic way leads to a bigger non-silo-based approach because of that that decision. Well, if... You know, if the silo decisions put you into a difficult position with your customer where you're not delivering value, you're not moving fast enough, you're just not delivering, eventually you're going to be forced to do something different because status quo isn't scalable. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the silo mentality by its very nature forces you into, at some point, unfortunately, either out of business or into a more holistic way of looking at the IT operating model. Only when the pain has increased to a level that status quo is no longer tolerated. Or you have a new leadership come in who wants to rearrange this in a more sane, <laughs> holistic way. Right. Right. Which is interesting because I've seen some businesses that bring in new leadership. Uh, and it, it's almost, I'd say it's almost the majority of businesses that bring in new leadership. Uh, or when new leadership comes in, they start to replace pieces of the business left and right. So they'll they'll take the first level of executives and replace them with people they know and they've worked with in the past. And it kind of makes you wonder, is that because you all can replicate success you've done in the past? Or is that because you need to understand the model and it's easier to start fresh? Well, sometimes the latter is the case because a lot of times our senior leaders have come up through the technology tower mentality mm -hmm. and they believe their job is to basically optimize technology towers in isolation, right? So they're super techies. Uh, sometimes you need to bring in fresh people at the top who understand the value of integration and the value of systemic 
value creation. Basically, we're all in this together. Yeah. So the people that have been too long and have come up through this tower mentality are sometimes very difficult to change. So sometimes it's a bit of nepotism, as you mentioned, but sometimes these changes were necessary simply because there wasn't going to be change until some deck chairs were rearranged. Yeah, well, yeah, I think the nepotism thing, I think that's that's my observation. I, I, I can't say one way or the other. But but it does, sometimes I look at these changes, especially in our industry and, and companies I've worked at, it's like, you know, I've fortunately... Fortunately, I've never been in a position where I had to make a decision about do I replace you because it's the efficient thing to do if I'm looking enterprise-wide and holistically at what's best for the enterprise, or do I do it for, you know, for, for various other reasons? You know, and we go back to, you know, uh, scale down a bit back to our IT operating model, and we start to look at efficiencies uh, because we now have this model in front of us, you know, I, I start to wonder... Uh, once you have this clear of a, of a picture or a vision, you know, the human element, I think, sometimes gets entered into it. And gosh, there's no practitioner radio for that. In the end, when I've got some kind of end-to-end view of things, I can make the right decision strategically as a senior leadership team. I can literally look at my end-to-end value chain and say, where's my bottleneck? Do I have demand even coming into this bottle, <laughs> this value system? Is it coming in well? Is that my bottleneck? Is my bottleneck in design? Do I have, you know, work orders and or engineering tasks starting to pile up because it's not being efficiently handled in design? Do I have a bottleneck in the build process and the move to production process? Do I have a bottleneck in just running on the operations side and no triggers for continual improvement based on repetitive issues and incidents happening over and over again that no one's doing anything with? Right. Right? Do I have a bottleneck in the fact that I have no controls the system control, as you mentioned from the Matrix reference, that basically tries to ensure that the thing happens the way it was planned. And the question is, was it planned or was it simply, you know, organically created through time? I'm sorry, Troy. It is official. You are Neo. <laughs> I see within the Matrix. <laughs> uh, yeah, you are Neo. I am sorry. It's, it's, after, after 19 episodes, I, I'm not messing with you ever again. Uh, <laughs> Troy, it's that time. It's that time. It's Troy's Thunderbolt Tip of the Day! Okay, remember, every complex value system has a natural flow. In order to understand that flow, you need to rediscover the end-to-end supply chain. In other words, we're redrawing the picture on the puzzle box, and that is critical to understand how all the pieces fit together. Troy, um, I won't talk to you until next year. Uh, you're an incredible, literally, you're an inspiration to me on so many levels from just being someone I admire who teaches me continuously when we speak uh, from a human who's someone who carries himself just with such uh, grace and intelligence. And it's been a magnificent 19 episodes. I wish you and your family, you know, the very best uh, of holidays. And and to everyone at Pink, thank you for making uh, Practitioner Radio possible for so many end users out there. And, uh, Thanks so much, Troy. I really appreciate it. Chris, it's my pleasure. And I just, I love working with you too for many, many reasons. So thank you and have a great holiday. Okay, everybody, we will see you in 2012, kicking off episode 20, 20 of Practitioner Radio and maybe taking on that beast of culture. This has been uh, Practitioner Radio, Pink Elephants uh, podcast for the ITSM community. Thanks so much, everyone. And see you next year. <laughs>